Well, this is Current Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air, and I am Jim Grant. With me, as always, is the great deputy editor of Grant's, Evan Lorenz. And um, Henry French is uh, at his post at the control panel. And uh, Evan, these are flush times in the field of interest rate observation. I see the uh, 10-year Treasury note is above 4% this morning. I, I, I like that. I mean, I, uh, these are full-bodied, uh, substantial interest rates. I hated the ones you could scarcely see. 10 years of that stuff. The ones where you need the magnifying glass when we had over $10 trillion worth of uh, debt trading at negative yields? Yes, those. And, uh, you know, I, I feel a little bit nostalgic, as I might have mentioned uh, one or two broadcasts ago. I, my very first job on Wall Street was in the year 1967. I just got out of the Navy, hadn't uh, resumed college, and I was a clerk on the bond desk at McDonnell & Company on the uh, long-dated benchmark issue with a four and a quarter of 92. I, 25 more basis points, and I'm going to go out and have myself some sort of nostalgic glass of something or other. <laughs> I guess we're getting there. Um, with us today, ladies and gentlemen, is Seth Klarman, Seth A. Klarman. Um, needing no introduction, he shall get none except to say that uh, he is a natural uh, 400 hitter in the field of buy low, sell high. I would say the existence of Klarman Hall at Harvard Business School is itself a refutation of the strong form of the efficient markets hypothesis. So that's that's as far as the introduction will go. He's also the president and a founder of the Baupost Group. So Seth, welcome. Jim, it's great to be with you. We go back a long ways together and uh, it's such a pleasure to, to, uh, to do this today. Isn't it? It's great. This is a... Uh, this is a commercial endeavor. This is this is not just some sort of a seminar at Harvard. This is we are in the business of um, of promoting, yeah, unabashedly, unashamedly promoting security analysis principles and technique, the seventh edition, edited by Seth A. Klarman and written long ago by Benjamin Graham and with assistance of David L. Dodd. So, uh, Seth, together uh, we were involved with the sixth edition and you uh, have steered the seventh into existence. And this thing, this thing is as big as, I don't know, what, uh, Evan, how would you characterize the size of this book? I'm trying to lift it up right now, and I, I just can't. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, I need a wheelbarrow. Yeah, right. Well, it's worth a lift. It is worth a lift. Um, Seth? What, what, why don't we call it thicker than ever? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and by the way, Jim, let, let's sell some copies, because um, I'm donating all the proceeds from any royalties I get to uh, charities that bring people into the investment business who haven't historically been brought in. Um, so pe people of color, uh, women... And uh, there's some great organizations. And so I'm excited to, to kind of be doing two good things at once, hopefully bringing a great book out and, and also helping people get into the industry that has been so good to uh, people like you yeah. and me. Good, good cause, good book. Where to begin? I think I'll begin with this question, Seth. Why a seventh edition? So uh, McGraw-Hill approached me. Um, I think historically they've tried to do new editions every, every decade and a half. When they asked, I, I obviously have other things I could do with my time. I thought really hard. So much has changed. And I think that the same reason I wrote Margin of Safety 30 odd years ago, I feel like the public benefits from people saying, let's remember that what you see in front of you may be part real, but it also may be part illusion um, that the market doesn't only just go up. What? Um, that there's a lot of lot unusual. Yeah, I know it's shocking. There's a lot unusual about this period. We, we're going through a 
about 12 years without an economic downturn. We had the longest bull market on record. And most importantly, we almost certainly had an everything bubble um, that was essentially a credit bubble that ran amok and spread into everything else. And, and as, as you were um, riffing a little bit before we started, how interest rates were actually zero for quite some time. Enormous volumes of debt were issued at negative rates. And it, it's it's um, fed a um, waves of speculation that haven't come close to being fully extinguished, even in the uh, down year of 2022. So I think there's a lot that's the same in terms of how to think about investing and a lot that's different and new in terms of the way, the ingenious ways that the market has um, learned how to speculate and, and uh, you know, herd money from one asset class to another and, and yet another. And I think this addition does a really good job of saying, okay, what's new? What's new in the world of investing? What's new in the world of government intervention? What's new in the world of business that, that investors ought to be thinking about, even as we try to stay centered on what, what are the rules that, and, and principles that you're going to want to apply not just in 2023, but for the next century, as Graham and Dodd is now hitting about the century mark in, in, in terms of the original edition of security analysis. What uh, struck me so forcibly about the original text was the way that uh, Benjamin Graham, so deeply immersed in the trials and the uh, almost um, existential, to use that, uh, to mispronounce and to use, overuse and overused word, difficulties of the early 30s, how he rose above them uh, to see things that were more or less permanent in the marketplace as opposed to those that were more or less cyclical. Very impressive and, 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 and rather inspiring. By the same token, I think this uh, seventh edition contributes um, a great deal in helping people to, to remove themselves uh, from the, uh, uh, the kind of the spirit of the everything bubble, the spirit of ZERP and NERP and QE, and to see uh, finance with a, a longer... A longer perspective. And um, you assembled some really striking uh, talent to contribute to this. I'm, I'm thinking, of course, of our mutual friend, David Abrams, who, who has been hiding under his bushel basket of a really, really impressive writing talent. I'm going to send him a note asking why he was doing wasting his time managing money when he could have been writing about it. Um, I see Todd Combs is in the lineup and uh, Howard Marks. And to me, one of the, the, the great sleepers, I didn't know about her, which is my problem, but is Dominique Miel, who wrote the most charming introduction to, of all things, <laughs> Distressed Credit. But she, too, is a shining light out there. So tell me about how you, uh, how you wrestled all these people in and, and what are the highlights of the essays that you can bring to the attention of our listening audience? So, Jim, the, the thing you referred to, I think the spirit of Graham and Dodd is the one that in, in, in the security analysis first edition, they referred to the, the idea that they had to fight the idea that depression would be the permanent order yes. and yes. that they were in it. And it had been going on forever and it was excruciating markets top to bottom down over 80 percent. And yet they knew then that this wasn't wasn't over. The world wasn't ending. This is what markets do. They undershoot and overshoot. And so in that same spirit, I think we've tried to say, what are the principles today? Now, let's also remember, we took this assignment in late 21, assembled the team and did our writing and uh, during over the course of 22. So when we started this, 
the markets were still in a bubble, um, they'd been up um, uh, you know, about sixfold from the, the uh, great financial crisis. And none of us knew if that would, it would be blowing up or, or subsiding or not. Um, and so here we are. So I think that, that, that that's exactly what we tried to do. I tried to build a team. I was very gratified because everybody I asked agreed to do it. And we, tr we tried to say, who are the right contributors? Um, as you point out, Dominique Miel is a wonderful writer. She, she has worked in credit and distressed debt at Canyon uh, Capital and, uh, uh, among other things, wrote a book called Damsel in Distressed, um, which recounts her career. And I got a copy of that from a friend and built a relationship with her and knew she'd be great to, to talk about that category of investments here. Um, but we got, we got the old band back together. You're back and uh, David Abrams is back and Roger Lowenstein's back and Howard Marks is back. But we also have some wonderful new contributors, as you point out, Todd Combs, who's one of Warren Buffett's right-hand hand men, um, Seth Alexander, sharing his perspective on endowment management, which didn't really exist 90 years ago. And, and you know, the, the edition one was, was put together, but is now a real leading thinker and a driver of, of um, decisions that move money managers and therefore move markets. Um, so it's really an extraordinary group. Um, and we, we um, with diverse focuses and uh, commenting on the original chapters, as well as adding a few that were, were not in the original because they weren't relevant then, like endowment management. One of the things about uh, Benjamin Graham, personally, that I, I found so interesting and, and so winning uh, was the uh, the breadth of his education and how we use that during his career. He came up through the uh, New York City public schools when they were uh, very rigorous. He was, an, as you know, uh, uh, all people know, he was a, the uh, son of an immigrant family. whose father died relatively young, and he was he grew up uh, uh, knowing all about wanting things he couldn't have. And he went to, uh, as I say, New York City public schools. He excelled in the classics, in mathematics and literature. I mean, there's nothing he didn't excel in academically. And he brought this... Uh, wonderful education that, that rounded out at Columbia College into uh, his work. He's uh, such a uh, an accomplished writer. He, he wrote, uh, I think, uh, had avocation as a playwright. He would later uh, comment on monetary affairs, proposing some alternative to the gold exchange standard. And yet he was this he was he was this quirky investor. I mean, we know about his greatness as an investment thinker, but there was an episode in his in his early days. He got uh, schnookered in something called Savold Tire, S-A-V-O-L-E-D, a tire company whose only physical existence was an electric sign on the west side of Manhattan. And uh, it, was a, it was a pure criminal scam, but he bought stock in this thing. So much for, um, as uh, Todd Combs said, uh, breaking companies down to the studs. And... Well, I'm, I'm loving your description of him. As you're describing um, Graham, my mind is going to, if only he'd been an orphan, maybe Lynn manuel would have written a play <laughs> about him as well. Um, it really is an extraordinary journey. And, and I think truly an American journey. You know, my dad came over from Poland um, at, at close to that time. And um, the, that America's uh, filled with stories of immigrants coming here, escaping a challenged life and building success. Um, and, and of course, his journey, like everyone else's, has its ups and downs. I also think, Jim, and I just think it's worth saying that the ability of a historian like yourself to take a look at somebody like Graham is so important 
Because I think one of the things investors don't do enough is think about history, that so many lessons that, of course, it doesn't exactly repeat, but it does often rhyme. And everybody thinks that their new era is, is special just to them and will never end. And the reality is that Wall Street is in the business of inventing new eras every couple of years, and they all end. And uh, as you point out so aptly, that, that people tend to think of progress on Wall Street, but it's almost always cyclical and not secular. And so we have to relive again and again the experiences. So there's an enormous amount to be gleaned from the, the story of Benjamin Graham and his career. And, and I hope that the readers will take the time to absorb that and spend particular time on your sections because it does such a great job capturing the moment that this came about in and, uh, and, and what that might mean for, for future investors um, as, as the world continues to evolve. Yeah, well, thank you for that. You know, um, uh, Benjamin Graham had a partnership with uh, Jerry Newman and um, they were in the business of, uh, of uh, the things that, uh, of, of this kind of securities and situations that most people found off-putting. I dare say that uh, in this, they anticipate a lot of what Baupost has done so well. But, you know, workouts and, uh, and bankruptcies and distress and uh, quirky things, you know, that require a lot of, uh, of deep study and analysis and understanding. But they approached it always from the point of view of what you could lose. And I think this was to a, a great degree uh, innate, uh, you know, as I think you say once or more than once in your sections, there are two of them by Seth Kwame in this book, uh, there seems to be almost a a personality type that uh, that warms to these ideas. And uh, Warren Buffett agrees with you, of course, on this. But uh, so uh, Newman and uh, and uh, Graham would be sitting around with something like uh, Geico, right? And so um, observing that um, uh, the stock could, uh, the, the, the business could uh, uh, do this or that, it could go up or go down, but we are protected by net current assets to the extent of X dollars per share. So the downside is fully protected. And um, that that approach is is more or less uh, has vanished for the simple reason that uh, there are no liquidations. You're again, you point this out in your in some of your writing here. Very few liquidations. Um, and uh, could you expand on this idea of what is and is not a margin of safety, and and what is its relevance in an era when something like uh, I don't know, any number of stocks are now trading not is a multiple of earnings, but of revenues. And that multiple is itself can be astounding. So what is a margin of safety and why does that still matter? The idea of a margin of safety comes about from, from the very thing you, you referred to, Jim, which is the inherent risk aversion that is part of a value philosophy. The margin of safety means you have room to get some small things wrong, you have room for bad luck, you have room for the vicissitudes of the economy going against you for quite some time, and yet you're still protected. I think that along with the uh, everything bubble has been pretty much a draining out from the entire system of the idea that risk is there, that risk can't be controlled, that we haven't permanently seen and created an era where there'll just always be less risk, less volatility, that risk inherently exists in human affairs. It exists in, 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 in terms of mother nature. It exists in terms of the business cycle. It exists in terms of humans over leveraging and overreaching. Risk is always with us. And 
I think one of the most important things is that uh, it, it, security analysis talks about risk. It talks about risk being how much you can lose and whether you're likely to lose it. And I think we've gotten away from that, that the academic definition of risk, which has been around for decades now, is risk is measured by volatility. And I dispute that. I don't. I think volatility can be a value investor's friend. Volatility can drive undervaluation and make us make a small mispricing into an even more egregious mispricing, leading to great opportunity. So the volatility, um, and of course, volatility is not a natural phenomenon. That itself is based on what humans do, the human response to news and business developments. So, um, and and there's a really scary notion out there now which is that risk is actually a good thing and that for an investor to prosper, they need to go and seek risk because the only way to get return is is by uh, assuming risk. And that if you don't assume risk, you can't get return. My career and Graham and Dodd's careers were staked on the idea that the opposite is true, that the way to get return is by avoiding and shunning risk and hedging risk and protecting against risk. And so I think the world is kind of upside down in the sense of a uh, the idea of a margin of safety, the idea of what risk is and, and how to think about it as an investor. Um, people have joked with me over the years that my book would have sold better had I called it the safety of margin. And, and I, I, you know, while, while I never seriously considered that, I do think that the world has turned on its head a little bit and that investors should once again actually think really hard about risk. Think about not only return on capital, but return of capital in the investments they make, that this too will turn out to be cyclical and that um, the, we know that the best periods to invest are the ones where you enter at a low valuation and the worst periods for future returns are where you enter at a high valuation. This is a market of stretch valuations once again. After the down year of 2022, the market's once again over 20 times earnings and a number of stocks stand out for, for very extended valuations. So the risk is out there and investors should beware. Uh, Seth, when Graham and Dodd were writing, they had to look through the Great Depression and say that the world will not always be in a depression. For the last 14 years, investors have been rewarded for buying the dip and looking through risk. And as you mentioned, the market was down last year, but buying the dip forcefully paid off this year, especially on very speculative bets. What has to happen to change the mentality for people to appreciate that risk exists and that it is something that should be worried about, hedged from, or avoided? I think it's such an important question. I think one of the things that have caused investors to think that they ought to buy the dip is because the Fed has been complicit in working with investors, created the idea of a put um, that the market would not go below because the Fed would intervene. I think Alan Greenspan sort of enjoyed the idea that there was there was a notion of a Greenspan put, but we've since then had a Bernanke put and a Yellen put and um, every, every which put in between. And I suppose perhaps a Powell put, although that's harder to think about because Jerome Powell to fight inflation, which is suddenly uh, very, very on the rise, has um, in, in effect brought rates so high and they continue to move higher and probably should since inflation's not not um, gone, that Powell might not be in a position to provide a Powell put. Um, or even willing to provide the PAL put because PAL's creating the downturn. PAL would like, I think, nothing more than the stock market to cool off and to slow the economy, which has continued to be stronger than the Fed would like, despite how much rates have come up. So I think there's a chance that the Fed may not be in a position to rescue everything. 
And then, of course, investors learn behavior like Pavlov's dog. Um, should you buy every dip? Well, certainly it's been a working strategy, successful strategy for quite a while. But you could imagine a period um, where it doesn't work, where people realize that paying less overvalued price for things is not the best idea. Um, you could have had that in 23 had the market not rallied so strongly back after 22. But a lot of stimulus money is still around. And, you know, the AI certainly provides a good story for people to uh, to continue to jump into certain kinds of stocks. And those stocks have exploded upwards this year. Um, so I, I don't I don't know when buying the dips will stop working. Buying the dips, by the way, is not a crazy idea. It's a little bit consistent with the idea of Graham and Dodd that, you know, things that go down are more attractive than things that are on the new high list. but you shouldn't blindly do it. I don't think Graham and Dodd or anybody else would recommend blindly buying dips. And yet that's what it seems as though investors have been doing. So I, I think um, as Jim likes to put it sometimes, you know, we are engaged pretty clearly in a value restoration project. And we, we're doing that by having, um, a, at least with the significant correction of 2022, a restoration of deeper fundamental value, less overvaluation in parts of the market, in sectors of the market. And, and it wouldn't surprise me to see that continue. Um, nothing, you know, nothing goes up forever. Nothing goes down forever. Uh, Seth, I'm looking at uh, page um, XV, no, XIX. Um, that's Super Bowl page 20. That's, this is the, uh, the preface of the seventh edition written by Seth Klarman. And here was what you say. Indeed, an investor may not be rewarded for quite some time and perhaps experience sizable paper losses. Investors, therefore, can be right, yet appear wrong to themselves and to anyone who looks. Close quote. This, uh, I read this and thought about it, and it brought to mind this, um, this uh, meme thing you hear uh, nowadays. That is a phrase that uh, is quite popular. It's my truth. So in a way, um, uh, the steadfast value investor uh, buying something, having, uh, having uh, performed uh, uh, substantial, uh, even exhaustive security analysis on the situation, so investor buys it, the, the, uh, the stock price pulls back, keeps pulling back. Market says it's going down. The market says there's something wrong. But your truth, my truth, is that there is intrinsic underlying value. And I cheer the pullback because it allows me to buy more. Now, is this a personality quirk of the value investor? Is it an expression of um, a perhaps dangerous dogmatism or egomania? How is it that you can stand up, one can stand up in front of the entire all-knowing marketplace and insist that something is right when uh, the overwhelming majority is yelling at you every day between the hours of 9.30 and 4 that you are wrong? Yeah, they yell at you far, far longer in the day than that because they have <laughs> telephones and they can call you up and 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 complain about performance and whatever. Um, but 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 seriously, Jim, it's um, I think you've you've just crystallized the hardest thing about investing. If you believe that markets can be inefficient, if you believe they can't be inefficient, they're just always efficient. Then the market does know, and you should just trust that if the market goes up, it's telling you you were right. And if the market goes down, it's telling you you were wrong and you should just buy whatever you should, you should index at least, or you should, you know, like things more when they're up because the market's telling you they're good. I think that's kind of on its face crazy that we can see stocks that gyrate so much 
and and overshoot and undershoot and, and you you have no stock better than that in the last 12 months or so than meta which has a you know very large advertising business um through its social media and uh, growing businesses in a number of other areas and the stock has been as low as the 80s and as high in in about the last year as the 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 two and three hundreds and without much change in the business, um, small changes at the margin in the business, a massive change in perception. That's what Graham and Dodd were talking about. They were talking about that sometimes Mr. Market is exuberant and sometimes Mr. Market's depressed and overshoots in both directions. And the key for an investor is to have a, have a, you know, a calculator and a, a way of assessing value um, and be greatly humble and check and recheck their work when price goes down. And when you can confirm that a dollar that was 70 cents is now 60 or 50 or 40 cents, you continue to check and recheck. You always remain humble that the market may somehow know yeah. something. And then you buy more and you turn lemons into lemonade. And it's that ability to see the decline, not as a vote of, of lack of confidence, but as a greater opportunity. That's the critical thing for for value investors. Reading um, the seventh edition, I, I was I was thinking about baseball. I do that all the time anyway. But I was I was thinking about baseball in the context of the changing um, nature of uh, acceptable um, uh, analytical metrics. Uh, so uh, book value is more or less out. You devote most of your chapter on balance sheet analysis to uh, uh, showing us the error of an over reliance on book value. And uh, you know, simple PE ratios are not dispositive. Although I would suggest that a 40 times price to sales ratio in the case of NVIDIA may just be dispositive, but never mind. But anyway, getting back to baseball. So batting average used to be the only thing you watch. I'm talking about 1955 when the Brooklyn Dodgers won the World Series. Um, batting average was dispositive. Wins for a pitcher, ditto. Now no one in the know um, was embarrassed himself by talking about how many wins Garrett Cole has. It's all about, uh, you know, something like, anyway, it's whip or win or something. Similarly with batting average, it's not batting average. Where have you been? It's OPS, et cetera, et cetera. Um, used to be that monetarism, that the money supply was the thing, but now it's not anymore the thing. How is it that these trusty metrics are ever evolving? So I, I think you're asking a about a, as compound a question as somebody could ask. I think that, the, let, let me try to address. So I think in terms of human progress, it, you have to love that people are getting smarter. People look at the same facts. They look at, you know, the pitching mound being 60 feet, six inches from home plate and the bases being 90 feet apart. And they see something different than anybody saw 30 and 50 years ago. And you and I grew up looking at you know, RBIs and looking at, at ERA. And we've now come to appreciate, oh yeah, I could see why that isn't applicable in every case. It was shorthand. It was, um, I don't know, was it intellectual sloth? Was it um, lack of deeper curiosity? And and in a way, it's like any frontier that that there's always new facts, new statistics, new ways of looking at things. That's a wonderful thing. Um, we shouldn't um, not appreciate that. On the other hand, sometimes there's a historic truth that may matter even as the old uh, statistic goes away. So maybe people aren't looking at uh, the, the changes in the money supply on a very short-term basis the way they used to hold their breath when those changes would be announced each week in, in you know decades ago. 
But I think the idea of that isn't crazy, that it does matter how much money is printed. It does matter how big debts are. And because they haven't mattered lately doesn't mean they don't matter. And so I think the challenge is to embrace the new statistics, um, understand them, uh, challenge them when it seems like they may not be telling an accurate story, you know, combine them, uh, mold them, uh, sometimes maybe figure out new ones that continue to improve on what the existing practice is, but also to not lose sight of, um, and, and this is a this is part of how I try to invest, that I remember so vividly, you and my friend Jeremy Grantham talking about corporate profit margins and how they've kind of doubled over the last couple of decades, something close to doubling. And I think one should always take that with a grain of salt that, that Jeremy wrote um, that, that if you believe in capitalism, you believe that that has to be competed away at some point. Now, he also retracted that at some point subsequent to writing it and said he no longer thinks that. But I don't know what the truth will be, but I hold on to the idea that Jeremy's original thought may turn out to be right that are these profit margins sustainable? Might the rising relative power of labor against capital uh, turn, turn to reducing corporate profit margins? Uh, might there be other changes in the economy or in politics in the future, such as tax rate, that could continue to impair corporate profit margins? So I don't know if it'll revert to the mean or not. You could say looking at that statistic has actually been a mistake. It hasn't meant anything. Or you could say, it, it just hasn't had enough time to tell. And I think that's one of the challenges with investing in general. Sometimes you don't know whether you're right or wrong. Um, of course, you don't have to try to be right about everything. But sometimes you don't know if you're right or wrong. Um, it, you can try to do a postmortem and say, look, based on how things are going, that investment is a mistake. But maybe you're looking at it at the wrong period of time and it's actually about to be a rousing success or the success is out, about to turn into a tremendous mistake. And it's part of the fun. It's part of why you and I find it so interesting to think about and participate in and write about the financial markets, that they they are um, ever a puzzlement and a, a very fun and and, uh, and challenging one where uh, one's batting average certainly won't be a thousand. Yeah. And it's still very rewarding um, to do. Uh, Seth, a, a while ago, you mentioned Meta. And uh, this brings to mind a discussion we had about the year 1996, I guess. Coca-Cola was all the rage, uh, not only as a beverage. Indeed, it was less about the beverage than about the stock, which was going to the moon and staying there. I mean, it, was, it was a positively bubbly time for KO, common stock of Coca-Cola company. And I called you and I said, um, uh, you know, what what is wrong? I mean, something has to give because this, I've forgotten where it was traded, it was like 40 times earnings, not sales, earnings, but still it seemed high. And you said, uh, what could go wrong? I don't know. Well, you know, it's not really good for you. Okay, so that's that was Coke. And indeed, um, it uh, did pull back and uh, went through a 10 or 15 years of, um, of rather comparative undervaluation. So this gets us to meta. So is social media good for you? And is it possible that simple observation on the Achilles heel of the Coca-Cola company, could this apply with, uh, to social media generally? Jim, I, I think, and you, you know some of this from things that you and I have talked about or, or things I've written, I think social media is um, a, a giant change that we really don't know how to get our hands around yet. 
in terms of the impact on society, in terms of what it means for uh, dissemination of, of false information, um, the impact on elections, the impact on frictions and fissures in our society. Social media is um, a relentless force, and it potentially, I think we learned this spring, that it's capable of causing bank runs, that the idea of a bank run, as, as, as you, know, you well know, was that when people became worried about the safety of their deposits in a bank, they would run to the bank to withdraw the money. Um, that actually literally involved physically relocating yourself and getting in line. Now you press a button on your computer and you move your money out of a bank that you may have heard truly or falsely um, might be having some some financial difficulties. And so I, I think social media is a very challenging force. We don't really know what to do with it as a society. Congress isn't doing anything in terms of regulating it. We know that it's connected to depression in teenagers, uh, potentially in suicidality. Um, and it, it is this and other change are happening at the speed of light and maybe is starting to eclipse the human ability to keep up. And I'm really worried about that. Um, and I, I don't fully know what to do about it. In terms of looking through what is transient and what is permanent, could high profit margins today actually be uh, after effect of low interest rates? And not because corporations are paying less in interest expense, but there's this thing called the Levy-Kolecki equation, which relates macroeconomic um, aggregates like government deficits to profits. And it turns out that higher deficits are good for the corporate bottom line. Low interest rates have allowed governments around the world to run large deficits and run up large debt loads. But if we're going into an era of higher interest rates and perhaps more constrained government budgets, could that perhaps be one of the things that is transient in the cycle? So, Evan, I don't know enough about correlation between running large deficits and corporate profits. What I can tell you is I'm deeply worried about the effect of higher rates. The, you know, the, the world got used to low rates. It, it, it became a habit. Um, the same amount of debt seemed less of a problem at, at very low rates. And one of the biggest uh, borrowers um, that, that benefited uh, from the from the low rate environment and the availability of easy money to everyone were some of the less developed countries. And it's just on a, on a global basis, the debt in across countries, I think maybe every country except Greece has a higher debt to GDP ratio now than they've had at almost any other time. Um, or for some of them, certainly more than they've had at any time in their histories. I, I imagine that that could blow up um, in a very concerning way for the global economy and for the unsuspecting people in these countries. Um, and frankly, all the way to the most developed countries, you see debt to GDP literally rising everywhere. And it, it seems plausible that we will not be returning to zero rates. We will have um, a series of, of you know, a, a lengthy period of rates being restored to more like historic levels. And that's going to play havoc with all kinds of things, including all the way up to the, the stability of the entire global system, given how dependent we are on the United States, that if you want to be the world's reserve currency, shouldn't you act like it? Shouldn't you treat that as a incredible privilege um, that, that lets citizens of the country benefit from more purchasing power abroad and lower costs of goods that, that are bought? And, and instead, I, I think we treat it as an entitlement and and run rush roughshod over it, such as we're doing right now 
during a very strong economic period, running trillion-dollar deficits. So I'm deeply worried about it. I, I'm just not enough of an economist or a student of economics to know the direct impact of that on corporate profits. So many things obviously have changed over the past 80 or 90 years since uh, Graham and Dodd sat down to write. And I wonder, Seth, if the singular, uh, the most uh, important dis uh, difference between the present day and uh, days gone by in business is the, um, is, the, uh, is the advent of the seemingly limitless scalability of a digital business. Um, uh, Shad Rowe, um, a very accomplished investor in Dallas has been harping on this for years. That he's a he's a big Facebook uh, slash Meta fan and been trying to get it through my thick head. That really what uh, that is all about is uh, is limitless scalability. Uh, is that in fact what historians might identify as the uh, as the great marker of this age? I think that that this idea is is very powerful the the book that i remember reading over the last four or five years um is called blitz scaling and it's the idea that you could literally build a business to a billion dollars of revenue in the shortest time frame ever that has in fact happened that that because you can download software at the touch of a button you literally can have very few employees and no cost of goods sold so you've got a tremendous change in the entire nature of business and the financial statements of a business. You and I have debated, and I know, Jim, in the literature, it's debated, is, is technology continuing to accelerate? Is change accelerating? Or have the big ideas already been invented? Um, some people argue one way and say, look, we have electricity and we have air conditioning and we have um, you know, ability to travel across the globe. Um, it, better than we've ever have. And at the same time, um, we still operate many things primitively, including um, a, an economy based on carbon for, for our power. I don't know the answer to whether those big ideas are all out or whether they're only just getting started. Um, I think that advances in AI like ChatGPT suggest at least a computing power beyond anything that, that we've seen and I, I can't even articulate intelligently about quantum computing or many of the other advances that may be coming up. And of course, there, there are people working on advances in all kinds of areas, including nuclear fusion and, and other, other energy sources, et cetera, et cetera. What I would say, though, is that both with the tremendous success of America's venture capital industry and growing venture capital um, industry elsewhere, such as in Israel or such as in parts of Europe, that you have a tremendous engine of innovation. And if there are good ideas out there, um, they're likely to be funded and they're likely to be coming after any pockets of large cash flow or excess costs um, that are out there, whether that's in in healthcare and education and government um, or, or, or literally um, pockets of, of enduring high profits that might be able to be attacked. So I think the answer is this, this ability to grow and change at such a rapid rate that perhaps exceeds the ability of humans to keep up is a important change to recognize. It's one to be excited about, but simultaneously to fear a little bit. Um, that, that I, I think, you know, one of the things we may have learned from increased globalization and, and from NAFTA, for example, is that trade deals might be good in aggregate, but they're not good for everybody. And we could do a, a whole lot better job understanding 
not only aggregate winners and losers, but individual winners and losers. So we don't risk alienating people politically um, because an awful lot of people in our country feel like they've been left behind, maybe permanently so. And with the ability to scale change so quickly and so massively that we have now, maybe we're at risk of even further alienation and societal division, which probably isn't very good for the kind of society you and I and our kids and grandkids would, would want to grow up in and live in. Seth, uh, famously, um, uh, you worry from the top down, but invest from the bottom up um, with all of the troubles we have discussed from interest rates to uh, uh, the uh, mysteries and menaces of social media. Are you finding much to do? We're finding more and more to do, Jim. It's a very exciting period, reminiscent of past periods for Balpost, that you may have headline um, indices hitting um you know, hitting bull market levels again after the bear market of the last year um, and valuations not seeming cheap. But underneath the aggregates are a lot of individual situations. And we see opportunity across Baupost areas. Um, you were chatting about the restoration of yield um, and, and the excitement that you could actually get a yield you could, you know, bite into and maybe buy a cup of coffee or and a see, sandwich or, with. Or see. At, yeah, yeah, yeah it's a, yes, not invisible zero zero yield or, or the shocking negative yields. Um, so I, I do think that that um, there are opportunities emerging in credit. We have a, a surprising number of yields now in the double digits, and not all of those are good, but you can look name by name and find credits worth playing. Um, you, you can find opportunity in equities off the beaten path and below the most popular names. And we're finding opportunity in commercial real estate. We just agreed yesterday to do a transaction in the uh, senior housing space that um, is at a deep discount to replacement cost for perfectly good assets that underperform because of COVID. And we think have every chance of, of uh, recovery and, and then some. And we see opportunities in, in idiosyncratic private transactions as well. Uh, call it private equity, call it private credit. So you know, it's not peak opportunity. This isn't the best period we've ever seen, but it's a increasingly attractive moment to deploy capital. And we're doing just that. Yeah, good. Well, you know, um, the year 1974, um, Benjamin Graham wrote something called um, um, Renaissance for Value. At least that was the headline that Barron's put over a speech that uh, Graham gave before the New York Society of Securities Analysts. And in this talk, Graham um, it was kind of a, of a of a pep talk for the disconsolate analysts who were, uh, were confronting a list of net nets. Graham was uh, uh, stocks uh, valued at uh, less than the net current assets of the companies that issue those securities. And um, uh, parenthetically said at one point, he said, uh, well, I'm giving you a little bit of the old time religion and you don't have to listen, but then again, it won't do you any harm if you do. And um, uh, that is the very least that can be said for this great enduring piece of financial writing uh, called security analysis. Now redressed, gussied up, and improved through the contributions of Seth Klarman and his core of loyal essayists. Now out, available at a bookstore. Wait, we have still have bookstores? Yeah, there's one or two, right? I think in Manhattan. At a bookstore near you. So, uh, Seth, it has been a, a delight to talk with you again. Let's let's do it more often. And Evan, um, I'll see you in the office. And ladies and gentlemen, we will see you soon on, or hear you, uh, listen, uh, talk to you soon on Current Yield. Thank you for listening today.